Uh, the Institute uh, was founded in uh, 1984 um, with the goal of exploring all of the aspects of the, the search for life, um, essentially all of the terms in the, in the Drake equation. So while it may very well be that the universe that we live in um, is an anomalous occurrence in some multiverse of other universes, uh, the laws that gave rise to life here on Earth uh, around our sun are exactly the same laws that exist around uh, every star in our galaxy and every other galaxy amongst the many hundreds of billions of such galaxies. That was Andrew Simeon of the SETI Institute, who's here with us this week to talk about life in the universe. Andrew is a member of the research group at the SETI Institute. He's also the director of Berkeley's SETI Research Center, as well as a member of Breakthrough Listen, a project that also listens from signals from the universe. This podcast is brought to you by Space and Beyond Box, who brings the universe to your door. The Space and Beyond box is really cool, and there's several different kinds of boxes, each filled with astronomy and space stuff compiled by the editors of Astronomy Magazine. So here's how it works. You subscribe, and then they will send out one box each quarter throughout the year. And what's really neat is that each box has a different space theme. For example, the first one is called the Moon Box and has some really cool Apollo 11 stuff in it and a moon globe along with other moon items. The Space and Beyond Box will please anyone interested in space, backyard astronomy, and just plain looking up. And they make great gifts. So be sure to check them out on Facebook and Instagram at Space and Beyond Box. And if you go to their website, spaceandbeyondbox.com giveaway, you can enter to win a free one-year subscription or one of five first-year boxes. That's spaceandbeyondbox.com slash giveaway. So check them out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. Yeah, this this will be fun. You know, it's not often that we get to talk about aliens and the search for them, especially with Tony not believing they exist. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah, oh yeah, I forgot, right, I forgot to tell you that, Andrew. I've I've got a problem with some of this SETI stuff, but we'll yeah. we'll get, I'm rock, sure we'll rock, get into rock, it. Rock and roll. <laughs> but, now, it, but now we've got a professional here to professionally say Tony is yeah. wrong. Yeah. That's right, <laughs> Tony. You're full this, of crap. <laughs> this is going to be the this is going to be the great debate. Yeah, well, let's bring it. I'm ready to go. Yeah. All right. So, so Andrew Samian, you are uh, you. You were just telling me before I started recording that you wear two hats. You are the uh, director of the Berkeley SETI Research Center, which is obviously at UC Berkeley, and you are also, which is one of your main initiatives. There is the you're part of the Breakthrough Listen uh, project, which I want to get into. But you're also the director. You're the lead at at the SETI Research. Uh, Institute, your, the, the SETI Institute Research Facility, which in part runs the Allen Telescope Array. So I wonder if you could give us just a brief summary up, up top of the podcast of some of the things that the SETI Institute is up to right now and maybe uh, a little background on the Allen Telescope Array. 
Sure. Uh, yeah, great, great for uh, um, for having me. I appreciate it. Um, very oh, this excited is awesome. To, We're both very excited too. <laughs> yeah, to, to talk to you about what's going on at the institute. So, uh, the institute uh, was founded in uh, 1984 um, with the goal of exploring all of the aspects of the the search for life. Um, essentially, all of the terms in the in the Drake equation. And early on, most of the activity uh, at the Institute was centered around the search for intelligent life, uh, either the sort of first or the last couple of, of terms uh, in the Drake equation. But, but since 1984, the uh, Institute has grown um, remarkably. There's now more than 100 uh, PhD researchers that, that do work uh, across the spectrum of astrobiology at the Institute. Um, and while we continue to very actively engage in, in searches for intelligent life, there's also a tremendous amount of activity in uh, exoplanets, in understanding exoplanet habitability, uh, exploring the extremes of life here on Earth, uh, and the possibility for finding um, analogs to that, that extreme life uh, elsewhere in the solar system, perhaps on the surface of Mars or, or, or near, near the surface of Mars, or beneath the icy surfaces of large moons uh, amongst the outer planets like uh, Europa and Enceladus. Uh, with regard to the search for intelligent life, um, I'll, although again, our, our search started very much using radio astronomy and radio telescopes, we've now broadened to include uh, optical investigations. Um, Frank Drake, a very famous uh, member of the Institute is one of the leaders of a program uh, based at San Diego called PanoSETI, uh, which is an effort to build a, a, a very wide field, fast optical uh, observing system using Fresnel lenses and very fast photon counters. Uh, we also have a, a program that's led within the SETI Institute called Laser SETI, uh, which is building a wide field um, temporal and spectroscopic uh, optical SETI capability using off-the-shelf uh, consumer hardware. Wow. So this is not your father's SETI anymore. I mean, it started out, if I remember right, you said in 84, uh, that was a, it was a part of NASA, I think at the beginning, wasn't it when Jill Tarter and those guys, uh, were part, yeah. wasn't it part of NASA? Yeah. yeah, that's right. The, the history of, of SETI and especially SETI funding is, a um, a, a very interesting story. Uh, one that, that perhaps you could do an entire episode of your, of your podcast on if you wanted, but the cliff note version is that the very first uh, SETI experiments were in about 1960. We really mark the birth of the modern field of SETI around 1959 or 1960. And there were two things that happened then. Uh, one, there were a couple of papers that showed up in the journal Nature, um, including a famous one uh, by Giuseppe Cocconi and Philip Morrison, um, not particularly long, uh, but that essentially laid out the theoretical framework for radio SETI. It um, conclusively um, uh, identified the fact that radio communication that we were using here on Earth would, would travel between the stars unimpeded uh, by dust or, or plasma. There was, in other words, nothing between the stars that would stop the radio signals that were leaving Earth uh, from passing beyond our solar system and out to other nearby stars, uh, and turned that concept around and said, well, hold on a second, if other technologies exist, if they're producing radio emissions similar to ours, we could detect it with our, our radio telescopes. And also very famously, uh, Frank Drake conducted the very first modern radio SETI 
experiments using a um, 85 foot telescope in Green Bank, West Virginia. Uh, between 1960 and, and 1984, there was a, a, a gradual but steady growth in interest in the field, uh, and that culminated in, in sort of the mid-80s or so uh, with NASA undertaking a major uh, SETI effort uh, that ultimately was called the High Resolution Microwave Survey. And the SETI Institute uh, was, for, for all intents and purposes, the primary contractor for that NASA uh, SETI program. So NASA funded the work. Uh, it was all funded by the U.S. taxpayer, but the SETI Institute was was basically the research lab um, that carried out that work. Uh, and that was a, a, a wonderful relationship and a very productive scientific program until 1993, uh, when Congress, a, a particular member of Congress, actually a senator from Nevada named Richard Bryan, uh, decided that SETI was a waste of taxpayer money. And I remember that. Yeah, consisted of nothing, <laughs> nothing other than some, you know, crazy, crazy people in California looking for little green men, and it didn't deserve the roughly ten million dollars a year that it was receiving in funding. And that essentially terminated the the program. That was the end of NASA's SETI effort. Um, and there are some there are some glimmers of hope actually now, but uh, at, at the moment it was uh, it was really a catastrophic thing. But thankfully, private philanthropy came through to rescue the program, uh, and private philanthropy uh, gave birth to what's called Project Phoenix. And of course, the, the naming of the project, Project Phoenix, is certainly analogous to that, um, uh, you know, Phoenix rising rising from the, the ashes, um, and was able to, to carry out the program uh, successfully and, and completed it. Um, and then the, the second uh, chapter, in the, the story of, of SETI at, at the SETI Institute, or I should probably say the next chapter, uh, was and is the Allen Telescope Array. And that, yeah, that's named after Paul Allen from Microsoft, right? He, he ended up getting you guys. I want I think it's, they got you guys started, right? You guys, he put up like 40 or so of the arrays. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That right. So, um, I, I guess we can sort of, we can, we can frame some of this sort of historically as a useful as way as any to kind of describe where we are now. So following the um, completion of, of Project Phoenix, which involved using some technology that had been developed at NASA, some spectrum analyzers, high performance uh, signal processing equipment uh, that was taken to large single dish telescopes uh, around the world, um, there was a, a meeting that was held at, at the SETI Institute uh, called SETI 2020 that was looking at what the, what the next stage would be, what, what new thing um, could be done in order to, to push our um, search capabilities further than they had been with Project Phoenix. Uh, and the, the decision that was, that was come to at that, at that meeting, really the, the outcome was that uh, it was necessary to build uh, a large telescope that would be completely controlled by SETI astronomers, uh, one for which they would be able to de decide all of the design parameters themselves, could optimize it, specifically for uh, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, could utilize uh, all kinds of, of new technologies. And because they owned it, they could use it 24 hours a day, uh, seven days a week. Um, and from that meeting came a sort of back of the envelope design for a, a new telescope. Uh, it would be made up of many small dishes uh, rather than a, a single large dish uh, or a few uh, relatively large dish, dishes. For example, the, the very large array in New Mexico is made up of 27, 25-meter uh, 
antennas, the Allen Telescope Array would be made up of 350 dishes of only six and a half meters. And the advantage, among other things, of, of building telescopes that way, one is, is that it's just generally less expensive. Um, you build it for a given amount of sensitivity. It's cheaper to build it with small, many small collecting elements than uh, one large uh, collecting element. But the other advantage is uh, the fact that the field of view of a, a parabolic dish uh, the field of view that a, a radio telescope sees is inversely proportional to its size. So that means very large telescopes uh, have very high sensitivity, but they only see a little tiny patch of the sky. Whereas uh, smaller telescopes, a single, single smaller telescope sees a very large fraction of the sky. So if you build your telescope out of a whole bunch of small pieces, you get really the best of both worlds. You get a lot of sensitivity because you have a lot of these dishes, but since they're small, you can see a lot of sky. So you get a big field of view with a lot of sensitivity, um, which is great for all kinds of, uh, of radio astronomy, but particularly for doing um, SETI surveys. So that project uh, really began in, in earnest uh, around 2000 or 2001. And as you mentioned, Paul Allen, uh, we're, we're very grateful to say provided the initial funding for 40 for the design of the telescope and for constructing uh, about 42 elements of the telescope. But I should say a few other people uh, also uh, contributed to that. But the lion's share of the funding came from the, the Allen Family Foundation. And as a result, the telescope is called the Allen Telescope Array. And where is it? It's located in Hat Creek, California, which is about five hours north of uh, San Francisco by, by car, about uh, an hour and a half or so uh, north of the city of Redding, if you're familiar with Northern California. Can people get tours or is it off limits to everybody? Uh, no, it's, it's absolutely open um, from, uh, I believe, something like 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Uh, Monday, through, Monday through Thursday. I, I think it's currently closed on, on Fridays, just owing to the fact that we have limited staff uh, available there. Uh, the it's principally a walking tour, so you can there's a parking lot that you can park, and there are some um, uh, pamphlets and things that um, uh, explain uh, what what the antennas are doing and how they work, and you can walk actually amongst the antennas. Uh, you can visit the the control room where we process uh, all of the signals, those kinds of things. Um, and if if uh, any of your listeners have a a very specific interest in in coming out to visit, we also organize more in-depth tours where folks have a chance to interact with scientists and those kinds of things. Oh, that's really cool. Okay. Well, I don't want to get too deep into the, into the details of this, but I just want to very quickly ask you about, does, does this use this, when you've got all these smaller arrays combining their signals, is this using interferom interfer interferometric techniques where you're just gathering these using interferometry or is there some other thing involved? Because that's how the Event Horizon Telescope worked, by the way. Yeah, this is a good yeah. question. This, you, you sound very much like an expert, so this, this is going <laughs> to be fun. Um, so, yeah, the, the generic term for using in, in radio astronomy, uh, for using multiple uh, radio telescopes at, at once is, is sort of called interferometry, or, or one can say that you're using interferometric uh, approaches um, with the with the, the dishes, which is to say that you're you're taking advantage of the the interference pattern produced um, between the, between the dishes. That this is exactly the the way that we use the 
the Allen Telescope Array. Um, within right. the the within the sort of um, larger uh, sphere of, of interferometry, there are lots of of techniques that can be used. Um, the the typical thing that's done with uh, arrays of radio telescopes and what was done in the case of the Event Horizon Telescope with uh, global very long baseline interferometry using radio telescopes separated uh, all across the the planet Earth is called interferometric imaging. Uh, and that's where you use the array to produce an image of what's inside the, the primary field of view. So each of the telescopes sees a, a small patch of sky, uh, maybe a little bit larger patch of sky, depending on the size of the dish. Uh, and uh, then you get the sensitivity of all of the dishes together. And you can sort of combine all of the signals so that you, you make an image, a radio image uh, of, that, of that primary field of view. That's the sort of normal, normal thing that, that one would do. In SETI, we have a little bit of a challenge in that we're interested in looking at the data from these telescopes at very, very high spectral resolution. So that means we want to look for signals that have a lot of energy at just one radio frequency. And that makes imaging very, very difficult computationally. So the amount of, uh, of computation that's required to produce one of these uh, interferometric images uh, goes up very, very quickly with the number of spectral channels or the number of colors that you're trying to make uh, in, in the image. Uh, and in fact, for the moment, it's really not computationally tractable for us to make uh, radio images with billions of channels. It's just uh, our computers can't, can't do it yet. So in SETI, we have to come up with ways uh, of, of producing um, data that has billions of channels, uh, and we have to do it without, without doing uh, traditional imaging. And there are a few techniques that we use. One of them is called uh, beamforming or, or phasing the array. Uh, and that's where, instead of trying to produce an image over the whole field of view of the telescope, we add all of the signals from the telescope up in a particular direction on the sky, and we make the array of telescopes look like one large single dish pointed at one or maybe a few very particular places on the sky. Uh, and that's a very good way for us to target nearby stars, for example. So, so you've got to know where you're looking then, or you've got to pick a spot and yeah, look, that's right. point the whole array there. So you've got to kind of have a hunch where you might get a, a, a signal from an extraterrestrial intelligence then, right? You've got to kind of think about this. Yeah. You can't just yeah, that's, blanketly that's right. look at the whole sky and go, well, come on, baby, we're listening to all y'all. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I'll get to that. Yeah. So I, in, indeed, um, in, and, and this is true in, in optical SETI um, as much as it is in, in radio or, or many, many different kinds of SETI or indeed in, in astronomy, you do, want to point the telescope at something that you think is, is intrinsically interesting, or in our case, uh, intrinsically more likely to host an advanced civilization. Uh, that could be a nearby star, could be a nearby galaxy. It could be an interstellar object that was recently discovered that's streaming through our, our solar system. Oh, are, you are you talking about Oumuamua? <laughs> I, I am. I am. Or, or we, we now know that, that these objects are quite common and we'll be detecting many of them. It could be the location of a, a, some interesting transient, like a fast radio burst. But we do have lots of different places on the sky where we know 
interesting things are happening. It could be the galactic center. Um, there are lots of lots of ideas out no, there. There's so. no intelligence out there. That's too 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 <laughs> rough in the in the middle of the galaxy. Well, we we have uh, we have lots of lots of targets uh, to to choose from, and um, you know if you uh, queried a dozen experts on this field as to where the best place to point the telescope is, you'd probably get uh, 11, 11 different specific answers, and maybe one person would tell you that we should survey survey the whole sky. So, but this is just one mode that we can use the telescope in. But actually, a, a really unique thing about the Allen Telescope Array is its incredible flexibility uh, for doing surveys over wide, wide fields of, of sky. And there are a couple different ways we can use it to do that. So one thing that we can do, and this is really the, the subject of very active um, technical development at the Array, uh, is to, to produce something called the incoherent sum of, of all of the dishes. So I, I mentioned that our challenge with making Sounds images... Sounds like the way I do math. <laughs> our, our challenges with making images is, is that it's very difficult to make images with the spectral resolution or the number of colors number of channels that we need. Uh, and so we've come up with a kind of a hybrid approach where we um, combine all of the signals from all of the antennas together uh, in a very simple way, uh, but at very, very high spectral resolution, and then search for signals in the, that resulting data. And then if we find anything interesting, then we perform the, the full imaging over only those parts of the spectrum where we find interesting signals. So it's a kind of a triage approach where we do the, the simple thing to find the signal, to just tell if it's there. And then we do the more, more complicated thing that allows us to learn exactly where it is only after we've we found it. Um, now the upside to that is that it's much, much more computationally tractable. Uh, it's something we can do with computers uh, now, the downside is, is that it's a little bit uh, less sensitive, uh, approximately by a factor of six uh, than um, the, the full uh, interferometric imaging approach. But it gives us access to that big primary field of view, uh, several square degrees uh, on the sky. Um, the other thing that we can do with the Allen Telescope Array, which we really couldn't do with a telescope that we didn't own ourselves, is use it in what we call a fly's eye mode. So that's where we actually point the dishes at many different positions on the sky rather than all at the same position. Uh, and we analyze each of the, the signals from the telescopes independently. Uh, and in that way, we can get a massive, massive uh, field of view on the sky, several hundred square degrees. You've told us about how it, how it works, the different modes you're working in. You, you can look at the whole sky. You can look at... at, at um... A fly's eye view, you can look at, at one object very intensely or one small area of the sky very intensely. What's going to be the trigger? What are you, do you guys have any expectation of what you're going to hear? Are you, what are the characteristics of a signal that gets SETI excited? Yeah, so th this, is a, this is a great question. So we actually, to answer this, we can take a step back from um, radio SETI or optical SETI, and we can talk about just just the universe and and human technology so um of course the the universe is uh rife with all kinds of uh electromagnetic emitters um that emit uh radiation across the electromagnetic spectrum there are radio sources like quasars and pulsars uh radio radio galaxies and masers there are 
um, optical sources like stars themselves, uh, other galaxies, um, supernova remnants, um, planets in our own, own solar system, and then all kinds of interesting high energy objects, gamma ray burst, uh, ultraluminous X-ray binaries, uh, all kinds of, of interesting sources that you can see with all kinds of, uh, of different telescopes. And, and none of them intelligent. Well, so, so far, so far. <laughs> um, but, but they all have a, a common property, and it's an important property uh, because it ultimately provides a way of distinguishing between intelligent life and, and uh, what, what we might call sort of natural, natural kind of sources. Um, and that is that ultimately, uh, all of this radiation, in, in virtually every case, not every case, but most cases, um, results from the stochastic or random movement of, uh, of particles, of, of electrons or atoms uh, in, in some environment. And because there are those random motions involved, uh, it leads to electromagnetic energy being spread out in, uh, in frequency or in wavelength or in, in time. Um, because there's just everything moving around completely, all these particles moving around completely randomly, their, their velocities uh, are, are random. And so if it, it's a spectral line, it tends to smear out the spectral line in, in frequency. Uh, or if um, th they're you know, moving around in some you know, long-lasting environment, the amount of time that they emit uh, in any one particular mode is, is very, very long. Now, technology has a very different property, um, and that's the, the property of, of coherence. If you imagine just a, a simple uh, antenna uh, that has um, uh, electrons moving, moving in the antenna, causing some radio wave to be produced, those, those electrons are only, only moving in a, in a single direction. We, we construct um, antennas with very, very ordered properties. When we build a, a laser, we can build a, an optical communication system that only produces uh, optical light at a single wavelength. And this is something that, that simply put, nature is not very good at doing. Uh, artificial sources are really, really good at compressing energy into time and frequency. And that produces signals that are readily distinguishable from the, the astrophysical background. And, and to put a, a kind of a finer point on this argument, in the radio part of the spectrum, uh, so between say one and 50 gigahertz, the narrowest known, spectrally narrowest known astrophysical sources that we find, the, the, the sources that have the, the finest spectral extent are called astrophysical masers. Uh, and they're produced because of a, a thermodynamic uh, disequilibrium in a, uh, a gas um, that causes something called a, a population inversion um, and results in uh, a very narrow uh, spectral line. But even that very, very narrow spectral line is several hundred hertz wide, several hundred cycles per second. And a maser and is a laser in the microwave, right? Yeah, that's that that's right. It's it, it, it has a similar um, in this case, this is a natural source, but it has a similar amplification mechanism to a to a laser. And that's why it, it's the, the S and the E and the R stand for stimulated emission of radiation. And the, the physics is, is is certainly certainly similar. Okay, um, yeah, but if you if if you compare that several hundred hertz to um, to what 
technology can produce on 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 Earth. Uh, human technology can very readily produce a radio signal that's only one hertz wide, or one tenth of one hertz wide. So if we conduct a a, a radio survey, uh, we point our radio telescope out into the sky. If we see any radio signal that has a spectral width less than say 500 hertz. As far as we know, that radio signal is an unmistakable, unambiguous indicator of artificiality, of, of having been constructed by an advanced civilization. And it, it also turns out that these signals very readily pierce right through all of the dust uh, between the stars, uh, and they're a, a very efficient way uh, of producing an intentional beacon should uh, should another civilization want to want to signal us so these are the these are the kinds of signals uh, that we look for now I'm sure um, you or perhaps some of your listeners have some experience with uh, radio communication systems and signal processing systems and you'd say wait 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 Andrew these narrowband signals this is stuff we used in the 60s we don't use this stuff anymore we have broadband signals uh, QPSK BPSK we're using Wi-Fi covers lots and lots of uh, spectrum. Yeah, I was going to I was going to say that. <laughs> this is this is all this is all, yeah, all I don't true. Know. No, those so, aren't the kind of those aren't the kind of things we hear from our listeners, Andrew. It's more like <laughs> like like I was abducted by aliens and actually know yeah, them personally that. and yeah. So well, so, yeah. I, I bring it up only to say that um you know we uh, the 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 type signal signal detection, the kinds of signals that that we look for is very much an active area of, of research. And um, I, I could sort of describe it in a, a little more generic way by saying that we have certain expectations for the astrophysical background and the instrumental background when we use a telescope. doesn't matter what kind of telescope it is. Take a telescope, you point it up at the sky. There's a certain amount of, of noise that you expect from your instrument. It might be CCD readout not noise. It might be noise from a photomultiplier tube. It might be radiometer noise if we're using a radio telescope, but we have some expectation for, for how noisy the instrument is. And then we also have some expectation for the astrophysical background. We have maps of stars. We have maps of galaxies. We know where you know many, many pulsars are. We know where certain sources of fast radio bursts are. We, we have some expectation for what we should see. Uh, and, and ultimately, we would like our algorithms to basically tell us, is there an anomaly in this direction? Is there, is there a source with some spectral or temporal properties in this direction on the sky that is exhibiting properties that are inconsistent with our expectation for the background? Now, that sort of is an easy enough thing to say and to, to articulate in a few sentences, but actually to build that signal processing system that's capable of doing that with data rates that can approach terabits per second from a modern radio telescope is incredibly difficult. Uh, terabits per second, yeah. <laughs> that so that's I mean that's the that's really where the where the the research is and it you know it's it, and it's not just high data rates with radio telescopes. Modern optical telescopes, telescopes like the LSST, uh, for example, will will produce uh, similarly very very high high data rates. Uh, and so figuring out how to you know, really dig into those data and look for the the so-called needle in a haystack is is really a huge challenge. 
Okay, well, I know I already know how you're going to respond to this, but here you because you're you you are a person who's built a career uh, looking you know at SETI SETI efforts. You run two, you're involved with two different uh, institutes that are dedicated to this. So you obviously must be pretty optimistic that these efforts are going to work, that you're going to be able to detect something from somewhere, right? Uh, well, this is a, a, an interesting question. Um, so, uh, yes, in brief, I would say that I'm I'm an optimist, and there are lots of reasons why. But you know, basically, everything that we have learned in in astronomy over the you know last I don't know thousand thousand years of of, of astronomy, but certainly over the last hundred or so, has continually reinforced. Uh, this so-called mediocrity principle. There's there's really nothing unique uh, about our our solar system, at least in terms of the presence of planets, the presence of rocky planets, um, uh, the presence of, of of planets that are approximately the right temperature for for liquid water and biochemistry uh, as we know it to to take place. The galaxy is is full of of all of this stuff. Um, so I, I think there's lots of lots of real estate out there. Uh, and also, of course, the, the universe is very old. Uh, our, our galaxy is almost as old as, as the universe, uh, 10, 11, uh, 12 billion years. So yeah. there's lots of real estate and, and lots of time uh, and lots of, uh, of opportunity uh, for life to arise. But, but ultimately, the reason why I personally engage in this field is, is not so much that I'm an optimist, but rather that I think that the most um, exciting question in science is whether there's life beyond the earth. I think life is the most interesting, strangest uh, property of the universe that, that we know of. You know, I, I'm not an expert at um, uh, magnetohydrodynamics um, or uh, general relativity, but if I, I sit down in a, a graduate course in one of these subjects and someone explains to me, um, you know, the dynamics of galaxy clusters or, uh, you know, an introduction to, to cosmology, you know, all of this stuff kind of kind of works. It all sort of fits together. And, and I don't, you know, need to be an expert in it to, to understand that there's there's a pretty good, pretty good story. There are mathematics that back up our observations. We, we understand uh, a lot of, of, about how the universe works. Now, not everything. There are some things we don't understand, but a lot of it we do. But life, on the other hand, is, is a complete mystery. Um, how how life began, uh, how intelligent life evolves, and why somehow in a, a seemingly stochastic universe, the universe has has given rise to a phenomena that literally is now able to ask questions about about itself. The somehow the the the, the atoms and the molecules and the cooling off universe after the Big Bang have somehow come together in in some kind of uh, constructions that are now themselves thinking and feeling and questioning the universe that gave rise to them that that is is a very difficult um, concept to explain from the perspective of, of fundamental physics and and for me is is the most interesting possible thing you could research about the about the universe so even even if we even if our methods were so poor that we could only search for you know, the most powerful civilization around the nearest star. That was the only thing that we had any hope of detecting was some super civilization, you know, living on, on Proxima Centauri B. I would still, 
dedicate my career to, to this field uh, with the same, the same fervor. Uh, I just think it's such an interesting question um, that uh, even if the odds are very, very low, it's, it's worth uh, spending time on. And it, it doesn't seem to me, I, I agree with you. I, th- I love what SETI's doing. I think it's extremely important and it, it's kind of disheartening to hear how challenging it is to get funding, or it was anyway, and especially losing public funding. I think that's embarrassing. But, um, you know, it and it all of that would change instantly, right? If you get one signal, you'd instantly become- <laughs> Good point. <laughs> you'd, you'd instantly become the best funded project ever, ever. But- I think that there is no other question. It's arguably the most important question humans can ask. Are we alone in the universe? It changes everything. But I think that may be the challenge is kind of buried in that itself is that sociologically, like what happens? What happens? How many, you know, how many constructs fall apart if you find something? How much of this really starts to struggle how many you know people are very invested in the idea that there is no other life that we are unique and important because of it what happens if you find something yeah this is a good question i I think it's you know it's a question that's um that's asked a lot in in one form or another when when the topic of of seti comes up um you know i'm not a historian of science but i gather that uh that at one time folks particularly the church were pretty heavily invested in the idea that the earth was at the center of the universe. And we now know that, uh, that that's not, not the case. And, you know, people, people got over it, I think for the most part. So I am I'm, I'm optimistic about, uh, humanity's, uh, ability to deal with, uh, new information and, and new, new discoveries, uh, about the, about the universe. I, I, I don't really sort of fall into the camp where I think that there would be, um, you know, riots, riots in the streets and, um, you know, people, you know, setting, setting fire to, to public institutions, uh, that, that kind of thing. Um, and, and there are a couple of reasons why, uh, one, I think I'm, I, I'm just generally an optimist about, about humanity. I think, I think we'll figure it out. Um, another reason is, is that, um, interestingly in, in analogy to the, the, the Copernican, um, revolution and the sort of, you know, geocentric versus heliocentric kind of model, these, these kinds of transitions in our understanding take, uh, take a lot of time. And we, we've already kind of started down this road as, uh, as, as human beings in that the, the knowledge that exoplanets are planets around other stars are as common as they are, that every star in the galaxy has a planetary system. Basically, this is something that, that you know, young students are, are learning now. This is being, you know, taught in, you know, third grade, fourth grade, you know, introduction to, to space uh, kind, of, kind of classes. Kids are, are growing up with the knowledge that, um, you know, not, not only is the, is the Earth not at the center of the universe and, and not only is our, our solar system, you know, not somehow at, at the center of the galaxy or the center of the universe, but there are lots of solar systems out there. When they go out and look at the night sky and they see all those stars, every one of them has a planetary system, and some twenty percent of them has a, a planet that you know something something like the Earth that they they might uh, you know actually be able to 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 live on, um, and and so that that in and of itself is quite a quite a big change. And so from from that perspective, the the incremental step to say, well, there's all these you know habitable planets out there. We, we now know that a few of them at least are inhabited. 
with simple life, that's, that's not that, that big of a step. Uh, and then by the time you get there, then, well, maybe some of them have complex life and, you know, then, well, maybe, maybe some of them have very, very complex life, uh, life like we have, uh, here on this planet that's developed, uh, technology. So I think this is going to be a, it's going to be a, a, a gradual process. So it's, it's probably not going to be one in which we have to go from, you know, no, no possibility for life elsewhere at all, or at least very, very remote possibilities to, um, you know, having a, a hyper advanced civilization bring a fleet of spaceships into our solar system and, you know, begin landing on, uh, you know, planets, planets around us. Well, that's what I think is so important for the search, though, to remember. And the reason that I believe that ultimately all that separates SETI from success is time is because the odds may seem long, but it only seems long if you're looking at it on the short term. I think the odds are overwhelmingly in your favor to conclusively prove that the universe has no other life out there, you have to search the entire thing, turn over every rock on every planet in the entire universe, and really scrub the universe to prove conclusively there is no life anywhere. To conclusively prove that there is, you can do it in a fraction of a second with a single signal. One signal conclusively proves that there is. And I think that when you're, when you're describing the scale of the universe and for us to believe that our, our admittedly incomplete understanding, our incomplete scientific understanding of the, the very narrow sliver of the universe we've experienced is enough for us to believe that anywhere out there, there's not the intelligent life or, or life at all. I mean, I, I think there's going to be both, obviously, but I think that we don't have enough information to understand our own place in this very narrow corner of our galaxy, much less what's happening in the rest of the universe. And so for SETI to be searching, you know, with the equipment that you're using, I mean, you're well equipped. You guys aren't using toys. You're not using junk. You are very well equipped and you have an approach that makes a lot of sense. I think literally the only thing standing between SETI and success is time. And I would just remind everybody, though, that the I in SETI is intelligence. And I've already conceded that there is probably life all over the universe. In fact, I think it's quite common. I used to wonder about it uh, in terms of great filters and things like that. But I've conceded that the stage of life, the way it probably happens, that many astrobiologists I've talked to say it probably happened over a sequence of more and more complicated chemistry until we had something that resembled what we would identify as life. And then that just keeps going and, you know, complex life and super complex life. And you're right when you say, Andrew, that, you know, the universe is a, it operates under a lot of randomness. You called it stochastic uh, ideas or stochastic uh, events. And that is true. But we have to remember that astronomers also say that our universe is operating under a very, what they call finely tuned uh, arrangement. And I am by no means arguing that humanity and human beings occupy any special place in the universe. I often get confused uh, with, with that, and I am by no means saying we occupy a special place in the universe. Far from it. But this universe is an unlikely uh, occurrence, according to everything we know about cosmology right now. Small deviations 
and the way things are as far as certain physical constants and, and laws of nature wipe out any hope of life existing anywhere in the universe. So yes, we are operating under stochastic and randomness, but it's also under a very finely, highly regulated set of boundaries, a narrow set of boundaries, I guess is what I mean to say. Well, so the the universe, you know, as, as we see it, um, it, it indeed, you know, appears to be somewhat uh, perilously balanced in terms of its existence at all. And there are sort of lots of kind of cosmological questions that one can ask about the uh, you know, why we live in a sort of matter-dominated universe and not an antimatter-dominated universe and why the relationships between the fundamental forces are exactly as they are. And, and these are all, you know, very interesting questions from the perspective of, of cosmology. But a very important thing to remember is that the laws of the universe, as far as we know, uh, are exactly the same everywhere in the universe. So while it may very well be that the universe that we live in um, is an anomalous occurrence in some multiverse of other universes, uh, the laws that gave rise to life here on Earth uh, around our sun are exactly the same laws that exist around uh, every star in our galaxy and every other galaxy amongst the many hundreds of billions of such galaxies in the part of the universe that we can see. So the laws are the same there uh, as, as they are they are here, and they're not living in a, in a different universe with different rules. Agreed, and I concede all of that. Uh, however, as, and, and as the laws progress through the, the billions of years that the universe has existed, we've ended up with life here on Earth that has managed to evolve and intelligence. It does not follow. The numbers argument I find very unconvincing because while you can uh, have lots of occurrences of life, it does not follow that what you're going to get out of that is any form of civilization or intelligence. I've already conceded, like I said, there's probably life all over the place in the form of something simpler, maybe less intelligent, certainly more complex than a bacteria, but you know, less complex than a civilization. But it's the civilization part that there is actually convincing evidence that it that it is not common at all. And that would be in the in the you know uh, I've talked with this about Dustin at length, and it's also Fraser at, in 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 a couple of our podcasts that this it does not follow that we were going to get civilizations from life. There are plenty of, as you pointed out earlier, there's plenty of time. The universe, the galaxy, our own galaxy, just looking here is old enough to have harbored many civilizations several times over. And yet there's just no sign of it. And if you believe this Kardashev scale thing about what civilizations would look like at certain levels of their development, they should be pretty darn obvious, right? I mean, wouldn't you agree with that? Well, I, I, a couple of, of responses to this. Um, you know, one is is that <laughs> Good, you know, we well we we know without a doubt, absolutely conclusively, incontrovertibly, that it is capable uh, that the universe is capable of giving rise to intelligent life, life that can develop technology, uh, life that even can can develop the capacity to transport life and technology between the stars. And the evidence for that is all around us. It is human civilization. Right. Now, we have no idea whether that happened only once 
in the history of the universe or whether it has happened many times. And this is precisely the question that the search for extraterrestrial intelligence is, is trying to answer. We, we, we don't presuppose the existence of, of any um, particular numbers of, of, of civilizations or, or the technology that, that we have. We simply conduct searches seeking to constrain uh, the distribution of this this life um, as uh, as rigorously um, and and sensitively as as we as we possibly possibly can. So uh, you know, similarly, I, I don't I don't disagree with with anything that that you said. We we don't we don't know whether these civilizations are are out there. But uh, at the end of the day, we're only going to know if we look. Um, and we have uh, tremendous. Uh, and tremendously growing capabilities uh, to conduct these searches. And for, for my part, just as a, as a human being that, that wants to know the, the answer to this, as long as we have uh, a good idea and um, an experimental apparatus, uh, we, should be, we should be looking, looking to the stars uh, and looking, looking to the universe to try to answer this very profound question. I agree with you. I think there are only a handful of questions that can completely reshape the way humans experience life. And this is one of them. You know, things like like if we could research and know that we were going to find the answer to what happens after you die. I think that's another one. It's the same kind of thing. Like that yeah, can that'd be a good one too, That yeah. can reshape how you live throughout your life. That can reshape your life experience finding an answer to something like that, whether or not we're alone in the universe, I think does the same thing. I mean, imagine reducing this down in the human experience now to where you had to experience your life alone on this planet. It would completely change the way we see everything. And so th yeah. that's why it's it's a good thing that I'm not the president, Andrew, because you guys would be getting the funding <laughs> from everything, everything. And it would be, you know, I think, I think he wishes you were now. <laughs> yeah, yeah they, they'd be like, they'd be like, so, uh, Dustin, we no longer have a military. It's like, no, but I have a Klingon in my passenger seat. And so, <laughs> you know, mess around if you want to. But it's like, it's like, yeah, bring it or bring it on. But, you yeah, know, do what you advised. want. That's all I'm saying. Do what you want. <laughs> You're right. I don't have a tank, but mess around if you want to. Um, yeah. I just think that these questions can reshape the human experience. And they, you know, we're, we're at a point technologically where there are questions worth, you know, pursuing. And I'm glad that SETI's there to do that. And I want to be clear on something. I hope I'm not coming across as someone who thinks we should not search. Of course we should search. But I think we should be clear about what we're looking for. And because what I often hear is that, well, there are on average 1.6 planets around every star in our galaxy, and there are hundreds of billions of stars in our galaxy, and there are hundreds of billions of galaxies in the universe, then surely there is life somewhere else. That it does not follow. That is my only point. Just because you've got large numbers does not mean that these things are going to be everywhere. And I want to, and so my job, I feel like, is to say, hang on a minute. This is probably nowhere near as common as your common sense might tell you that it is. In fact, it's even reasonable to say that we are the only ones in the universe without being occupying a special place. We just happened to get here in a highly unlikely universe, in a highly unlikely situation, and 
we may yet be wiped out. It isn't over yet, right? So it is still, the the, the game is still uh, going on. So absolutely, we should look. I want to be clear on that. Sure. I, I also think that, you know, it, it all of this is game changing. I just want to be more realistic. I think I'm being more realistic about the uh, chances of our finding this kind of thing out there. Sure. But doesn't it, doesn't it also, like when you say that it, it sort of implies that it doesn't increase the chances. And so when you say like, it does not follow that life is out there in the universe. Sure. It, it doesn't say that civilizations or civilizations. Sure. But it's, it's not to say that with all of those huge numbers, that every one of them is not an opportunity for that life to be there. And if every one of those is an opportunity and looked at independently, then each one of them has a chance to be that. And the more of them you combine, the greater the chance that it exists at all, right? And we're combining numbers that are unfathomable, unfathomable. And if each one had a one in 10 billion chance or 10 trillion, or even a number we can't, we don't have, you know, enough letters for, right? Like it's, it's still, when you look at the scale of the universe, each one independently has a chance, a certain chance of it happening. And as those numbers go up, so do the odds. Yeah, I, I concede all of that. Um, but it's still, it doesn't, there's more we don't know. There's, there's a lot of information. We've all said this before. There's a lot of things going on. We have no idea what, what could be affecting this thing. So my question to you, Andrew, is with, with SETI, what you're, what you're doing right now, you're looking at radio frequencies. I, I forgot the bandwidth, but you're looking at the universe in radio because of this ability to, for those signals to get through space, dust and, and, and gas that could easily absorb other wavelengths. Uh, are you, are you getting enough information? Do you think, would you, would you like to look in other parts of the spectrum? You mentioned briefly some optical stuff. Um, but do you think SETI's got enough information to, to answer this question? Uh, yeah, well, so to be clear, uh, we're currently conducting searches uh, in the radio and in the optical part of the spectrum, and we're using uh, some telescopes uh, and instruments that are very good at looking for signals compressed in frequency, um, and some instruments uh, and telescopes that are very good at looking for signals that are compressed in time. Um, and uh, th- this applies to sort of the ensemble of, of all of the searches uh, that are going on um, now. We're also uh, beginning to look for things like very large structures uh, around stars and photometric data sets from telescopes like Kepler and, and now TESS, uh, those kinds of things. Um, I think there are, there are sort of two, two steps um, in our capabilities that I see um, in front of us. Um, I think the, the sooner of the two is going to be having the search for intelligent life be a um, a significant part of the science mission of all uh, existing observatories. Um, For the moment, um, you know, we we might be be deployed on on something like, say, 10% uh, of all of the, or maybe 20% of all of the major uh, observatories that that, that humanity has built. The, The Hubble Space Telescope is not being used for SETI in any any significant way. Um, uh, for example, um, ALMA, uh, a, a fantastic millimeter wave radio telescope, is not, not yet being used for, for SETI. So um, I hope that in the next kind of five to ten years, that whether it's our group or another group, uh, that we get to the point where uh, SETI is as accepted uh, a part of the scientific mission of a telescope as um, exoplanets 
or um, stellar dynamics or pulsars are uh, for uh, for for science cases and in, in telescopes uh, telescopes now. Uh, I think the next step uh, after that um, is to think about you know what kind of of unique uh, issues are there in SETI searches uh, that that might push us towards designing facilities that have uh, better better capabilities for SETI naturally. How can we um, influence the design? of future observatories so that they have more optimal capabilities for SETI. Because for the moment, um, aside from the Allen Telescope Array, which is really a, a unique case, um, as SETI astronomers, we look at, at existing telescopes that were built without SETI as a driver, uh, that were built for other purposes, and try to figure out ways of using those telescopes uh, to do uh, SETI experiments. And we're, we're pretty good at that. Um, and so we're, we're able to make, you know, very good use of many, many different kinds of telescopes. Sometimes we have to add our own instruments to them, uh, but we're pretty good at it. But the, the next step would be, well, wait a second. Um, if, if SETI is going to be a part of this telescope, maybe there are some, some certain design decisions that we should make uh, or early on uh, in order to make them more powerful. And I think that's the, that's the next step. And um, one of the things that I would say that I'm personally most excited about uh, is the possibility for doing um, radio SETI and perhaps also optical SETI from the far side of the moon. So the, the biggest challenge that we have uh, currently in, in radio SETI and a challenge that, that we're going to have even more in optical SETI with things like, uh, like Starlink um, is, is ubiquitous human technology. We, we are conducting searches for extraterrestrial intelligence embedded within uh, an ocean <laughs> of our own technology. <laughs> yeah. I mean, literally, I mean, at, I know, you know, yeah. literally an ocean of technology. If it's, you know, terrestrial radio transmitters and, you know, uh, free space optical communication systems, uh, airplanes, drones, satellites, radar systems, all of this stuff um, generates a very, very challenging um, background of, of interference that we have to see through. Uh, and in, in regular, quote unquote, regular astronomy, if you're looking for things that are not artificial, if you're looking for things that are smeared out in time and frequency, you, you still have to worry about the background, but you can do something much, much easier, which is anytime you see something that looks artificial in your data, you throw it away. You exclude it, you blank it, you somehow extract it from, uh, from your image, you throw away that frame from your CCD, uh, whatever it is. In SETI, we have a much more difficult problem, which is those things are actually what we're looking for. So we have to understand and identify and localize every single example of technology that, that we see. And the more and more technology uh, around us, the harder and harder that, that is. And so... Someday, I think we are going to, to need to go uh, off the surface of the Earth uh, to a, a more quiet place um, in order to conduct this experiment uh, more, more sensitively. And I think that sort of thinking uh, further, further in the future, I think that's definitely something that we'll need to do. I am so glad you brought up Starlink. I just want to, and I, Dustin, I want to get your thoughts on this too. I've asked you about it before. Just this week, uh, SpaceX launched another 30, uh, 30 satellites, I believe, with the goal of up to going up to, they've got permission for 12,000 of these satellites. They're asking for permission to get up to 30,000 total. Uh, what is your 
opinion. So this is going to affect SETI, it sounds like. And also, Dustin, what do you think about the effect that's going to have on amateurs? I'll let you start, Andrew. Um, yeah, so I, I, you know, I should be clear. I think the exploration of, uh, of space, um, commercial use of space is a, is a, is a phenomenal, uh, development. I, I just got back from a, a meeting in Washington, DC called the international astronautical Congress, uh, which is really a, a showcase, um, for, uh, for commercial and, and, and academic research, uh, uses of, of space. And I think the the net effect of um, you know companies like uh, like SpaceX uh, and Blue Origin uh, and other firms uh, in engaging in this um, this new sector of our economy, I think the net effect is positive for research and for science. Um, they're uh, developing technology and, and launch capabilities that ultimately are going to enable us um, to do far more than they will inhibit us from doing, uh, perhaps Might go in, to the far side of the moon or the, in the, the near term. I, exactly. That, that said, um, you know, things like, uh, like, like Starlink and other, um, you know, large constellations of, of small satellites, um, do, uh, pose some challenges, um, and are forcing us to, to improve our algorithms. Um, and in some cases are rendering certain parts of the radio spectrum, uh, essentially, for the moment, essentially unusable. Now, there's a possibility that we might be able to improve our interference mitigation and targeting um, systems such that we can see past these constellation of satellites. We can figure out ways of, um, of, of, of deleting their signal from our data uh, in, in clever ways. Uh, but it, but it, is going to be a, it is going to be a challenge in, in the near term, that's for sure. We're, we're kind of seeing the same thing on, um, you know, and it's, it's already been an issue, but on the amateur side, you know, most of the people are just trying to take pretty pictures. And I really don't think it'll be an issue. Um, you know, obviously it's an, one additional challenge. You're going to have a few more streaks through your images with satellites moving, that, that sort of thing happening. But even now as it is, you know, people are combining so much data and just the algorithm itself running to remove the streaks to... Um, you know, even just average out those, um, you know, if you're stacking 20 images, just averaging out those images, the airplane going through one image disappears, the satellite streak disappears. So I don't think for the pretty picture side of things, it's going to be detrimental. But I would be interested because, you know, you have this optical side of your observation, Andrew, that, that you're searching for things. I would be interested how the amateurs can get involved because, you know, the, the challenges are very real. It does take very sophisticated equipment to do it on the level that you're doing it. But I think that everyone with a telescope has at least some interest in this idea. And there's got to be a way to do it other than just, you know, what entertainment media is saying, which is going out. You know, you have to have like a certain proximity to a remote cornfield in the middle of the night where you're most likely to get abducted. You know, it's like... <laughs> It, they yeah. do seem to happen there the most. It, don't they? It's always <laughs> stay away from corn. It's always a garbage. <laughs> well, desert too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but anyway, there's got to be a better way to do it. And so, what is that? What do amateurs do? You've got your telescope, and you know, maybe your CCD or CMOS camera. What should people be looking for exactly? 
Yeah. Uh, well, maybe I, I have a slightly more philosophical of an answer to this question than you were um, expecting. I, you know, our, our group at, um, at Berkeley was a, a pioneer in citizen science through the, the use of a, a program some of you may have heard of called SETI at Home. Oh, yeah. um, which allowed uh, people to, to download data, in fact, still allows uh, folks to download data from our computers at Berkeley and, and, and process that data on their home computers and send the results back to us. I think that was, that was kind of citizen science uh, 1.0. Uh, and I think we've seen, you know, in the, in the 20 years since SETI at Home uh, came about, I think we've seen uh, citizen science 2.0. Um, which is things like uh, like Planet Hunters and Galaxy Zoo, where um, people download data and interact with data, but they're not sort of blindly running a, a computer program that just sort of takes advantage of, of some spare CPU cycles that they might uh, possibly have on their device, but actually takes advantage of their, of their minds um, and, and human analytical capabilities. And um, with uh, the advent of, of machine learning and, and related classification techniques, the involvement of, uh, of humans in, in the loop has become even more powerful uh, for many kinds of, of astronomy um, investigations. And I think what we're sort of just starting to see is, is citizen science 3.0. Uh, and that's where, where citizens are, are not only involved in the, the analysis uh, of data collected by sort of quote-unquote professional scientists, but are generating um, the, the data themselves uh, and are, are engaged in, in, in scientific discourse with, um, with other citizens and, and with other, other professional scientists. And I think the, the real um, enabling um, uh, tech, technology for that um, is, 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 is you know, things like the, the internet and, and inexpensive um, detector technology and the, the ubiquity of uh, radio sensors um, all over all over people's homes, and I think we're just just sort of sort of starting to see um, the the beginning of of that that era of citizen science, and I think it's uh, it's very very uh, exciting. Dustin, isn't it uh, Prima Luce that's got uh, an off the shelf uh, radio telescope that can, people can buy? They do, yeah. It's actually a really nice yeah. system. Yeah, I mean, I, I could easily imagine something like that catching on too. Because you know, you, you know, interferometry lets you be anywhere and connect your signals and observations uh, as long as they're time corrected in a way that increases resolution and all kinds of things. It'd be cool to see something like that happen in right. the future too. Get get everybody involved that has radio telescopes. Yeah, that'd be that'd be great. Agreed. Okay. Well, um, okay. So I guess we're sort of way out of time here. <laughs> um, Andrew, I want to thank you so much for taking time out to talk with us about SETI. There's so much more we didn't even get to. I hope you'll consider coming back at some point and maybe revisiting some topics we didn't get to, like maybe Breakthrough Listen and some other things that are going on at Berkeley. Um, but again, I want to thank you for taking time out to join us. Sure. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be with you. Um, Tony, thank you very much for the, the invitation. And um, uh, good luck. Good luck with everything. I'd be happy to come back anytime. Great. Thank you so much. All right. Well, on a, on behalf of Dustin Gibson, I'm Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. And as always, keep looking up. Space Junk is produced by Deep Astronomy and sponsored by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California. Please visit our website at spacejunkpodcast.com. Also, please send any questions and comments or ideas for new episodes to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com. <laughs>